So yesterday, uh, you might have noticed if you uh, know the Eightfold Path that I started with uh, appropriate view, appropriate thought, appropriate speech, appropriate action. And then today, I want to reverse a little the order. I want to use to talk about the last one, appropriate concentration. And then on the last evening, I want to talk about appropriate livelihood, which I think will fit more. So tonight, I want to look at uh, appropriate concentration, which is also known as samasamadhi, and also to look at awakening. And the beginning of the talk is very much uh, thanks to the book I am reading at the moment, which is called Satipatthana, a Direct Realization to Awakening, and it is done by Bhikkhu Analayo. And at the end of the retreat, I will put the name of the book, the author on the board. And I encourage anybody who is interested to read it because it's really, really well done. So, uh, samadhi, samadhi so is kind of the, the Pali word, which generally is translated as concentration, though sometimes it cannot be also con uh, translated as calm because it can mean the cultivation or the effect. So at the root, samadhi, the, the part of the word, means to put together, to collect. So often it's understood as composure, unification of mind. So in a way, the fact that often we are dispersed, and then this is kind of through the cultivation of this appropriate concentration, there is this unification, I would say, of being of body and mind. Then often uh, the concentration, uh, samadhi, has been associated with what we could be called intense concentration state, and often they call absorption. And you might know them also as a Pali word, which is jhana, J-H-A-N-A. -A. And it just refers to a state where you are in deep absorption, deep concentration. You could say an extremely deep, calm state of being. But Bhikkhu Analayo say that actually it is not just referring. Uh, concentration does not always refer in the text just to absorption, just to intense concentrative state of mind, but also it is associated with insight. So we have to be careful. Often it's really the concentration is heavily kind of put on this absorption state. Then you have samasamadhi, which is appropriate concentration. And again, generally it's understood as referring to the full absorption, to this deep concentrated state of mind. And often there is this idea that to attain awakening, you need at least to have attained the first level of this concentrated state of mind, the first absorption. But again, Bhikkhu Analayo very nicely, <laughs> looking through all the texts, find that it is not always so. 
that the Buddha also refer to the unification of mind for samasamadhi in connection with the seven other paths of the eightfold path. So it's not just absorption, but actually it's a cult. It's associated with the cultivation of the, all the paths that there is awakening. And so, in a way, also I think what is important to see, because often nowadays this uh, state of absorption, of deep concentration, are becoming very interesting. Because you've been meditating for 10 years and you think not much is really going on. Now I want something more tangible. So let's go for this jhanas. Let's go for this deep concentration. And now you have a lot of books about this. Lots of my friends have written them. And again, different teachers will have different ideas about what it means to have one of these concentrated states. And some people will say it's deep, deep state of concentration. Others will say it's a state of relaxed, happy reflection. And so in a way, it's very difficult to know. I mean, this morning Stephen was talking about stream entry. And certain people think you will only have stream entry if only you have had experience of this deep, deep concentration state. And then others say, no, you don't need it. So in a way, it's kind of a little difficult to know what is it really that you know, we're going for. Because this is the thing about awakening. What am I going for? And what do I need to get there? Do I need to have this deep absorption state? Otherwise, I'll never get anywhere. I mean, I had a friend who has meditated for more than 30 years. Lots of meditation, lots of retreat. And he's a teacher. And he went to Burma to study with uh, one of these uh, great proponents of the absorption state. And he was there for two months, I think, really practicing hard. And the teacher said, you, you did not even get close to the first one. <laughs> So who knows? And he goes to another teacher, and the teacher might think he has already got through the three levels. So I think one has to be careful of fixing, of focusing possibly too much on this concentration stage. And so in a way to see that in different traditions, in different schools, they'll have different ideas about this stage and the awakening. But what I think is interesting in terms of our practice, in terms of what we do here, and what we also cultivate in our daily life, is in a way to look at the four levels, the four stages of awakening, as it's generally understood. I'm not saying that this is a grid, and that's what we need to conform to, but I think looking at the four stages is interesting to give some indication about what, he, what are we doing? Where are we going toward? What can we hope to achieve here in our ordinary life? So what I find interesting about these four stages is that it's not about getting something. Because often when we think about awakening, often we use this other word, which I generally don't use, which is enlightenment. 
Because for me, see, if I say enlightenment, I think of a Christmas tree. <laughs> you know, and I think we are sitting here and suddenly there will be all these bulb lit around us, you know. And then generally there is this idea we kind of start to levitate. You know, this basically will become Christmas tree levitating. And it seems to me the, the word for body is more like awakening. Awakening from kind of like being blind, awakening from being confused, awakening from being kind of locked in our habits. And I think this is shown in the way the four stages are presented as each time you are losing something. It's not that you are each time gaining something, but each time you are losing something. And so what is interesting is to see what is it that we lose each time. So Stephen mentioned this morning the stream entry. So I won't go in great detail about it. But the first thing is that you lose doubt. And it doesn't mean after that you have no uncertainty. But I think it refers to what we call in the Zen tradition great faith. In Korean Zen they say you need to have great faith. And they say great faith come from this moment where you have no doubt about your potential and no doubt about the practice. And so I think that's what this is about, this no doubt. That doesn't mean that we don't question anymore, but I think there is this faith that I can do this. I have the potential to develop myself. And to me, that doesn't mean to be a big one-bang experience. But just often we can feel it when we de-grasp on something. Before you were really stuck, and now you're not stuck anymore. And so you find for yourself, ah, this is working. And I think this is what we don't need to think about deep state, but more this kind of state of relaxing our grip and we can experience this on retreat or we can experience this in daily life then there is the belief in self belief in a permanent self goal and again as I said yesterday it doesn't mean that we disappear but I think it's kind of when we start to feel ourselves in a less fixed way in a less solid way and we, when we start to see more that we are this flow of condition, internal and external, and there is more this feeling of a process, that we are a process which is influenced by different conditions. So sometimes we can be really bright and peaceful, and sometimes we might be confused. And that is knowing not self, kind of starting to, 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 to believe less in this fixed, kind of solid sense we have of ourselves. And the last thing that goes at that stage, Stephen mentioned it already. Generally, it's considered rituals, but nowadays, the people who learn Pali now are saying it's not rituals, so that it's not Indian rituals, but actually it's Sila Bata. And Bhikkhu Analayo give us a very good definition. I'm very happy about this one. And so what goes is dogmatic clinging to particular rules, 
and observance. So he's not saying that we're not going to follow rules and regulations, but we, again, not going to be fixed on them. But, you know, if certain rules are useful, then we will follow them, but we won't kind of adhere to them, kind of strictly. Because often that's what we like, certainty. So if there is a strong rule, we'll kind of say, yes, I'll do that. Once I had this uh, experience in in a center, it was strange because this is a very friendly center and they really put so much emphasis on being happy and smiling and hugging each other. So I got there, but they have a rule that if the bell rings, you have to stop everything and be in silence. And so there was a child crying and we were kind of trying to help the child. And we did not stop for the bell. And someone said, you must stop everything. So we kind of... <laughs> and so I felt that, yes, it's a good idea to stop when the bell rings. But if no matter what happens, you have to stop when the bell rings, I said, well, you never know. You know if somebody is dying, you kind of stop. <laughs> so in a way, to see... It's not kind of the thing per se, which kind of is in a certain direction, indication, but how strictly are you going to apply the rule? I think this is more what is questioned here. Then you have the next stage, and there, at that stage, greed and hatred are weakened. They're not dissolved, but they are weakened. And to me, at that stage... What happened is that the proliferation and the exaggeration is dissolved. I think it's kind of like as we start to meditate, as we start to cultivate creative awareness, we start not to grasp so much. And so we go less into this positive or negative proliferation, positive or negative exaggeration. And personally, I feel that these two stages are not amazing, impossible stages. For me, I think any of us can have this experience. Any of us can experience this on a meditation retreat or maybe in our life. That we kind of see our mind or our whole being is not kind of so much taken over by what we used to do. We kind of stop going into, it's always like this. It will always be like this. And you see more, ah, this arose out of this condition. How can I creatively engage with this condition here and now without having to stick it to something in the past or stick it to something in the future? So I think this, I think we can experience. Then there is the next two stages, and that, I think, is more difficult. I think that, I think, will take our whole life to get a little more toward there. Because the third stage, greed and hatred are totally dissolved. And to me, this kind of is referring to something which is more basic, which is more kind of like uh, uh, nearly kind of, as Stephen was saying, in the kind of the evolutionary kind of biology. And this is what I would call the tendency we have to nearly immediately upon contact 
before or against. You can really see this easily. Like recently, we had the World Cup. There was a football World Cup. Maybe I should tell you the result. Or maybe not. I won't. You'll know when you go out. <laughs> but what was interesting for me, I am not a great football fan. And, you know, time to time we had guests and they would look at it. And so one day we looked at this, uh, I think it was America, Ghana. And there was two Americans in the room. So they were for the American. So as soon as I got in the room, I decided to be for the Ghanaian. <laughs> and to me, that's what is interesting. You see something, and straight away, you see a football match, straight away, or you see a tennis match, you for this one against that one. It's kind of nearly immediate. I think we have this, and that's why the feeling tones are interesting, because we go like this. We have this immediate contact and feeling, and then we go this way, or we go that way. And I think for that to disappear, I think we have to develop a lot, I would say a lot of equanimity. And so it's kind of, again, it's not that we, I think we have to be careful of thinking of this stage as all greed and hatred, totally, totally going. But at least you start to diminish that kind of moving that way or another, in that kind of immediate manner. Then there is a fourth stage. And you might think, but what is left? And that's why I'm interested in these four stages, because something is left. And what's left to go is conceit, restlessness, and ignorance. And so conceit is very much the idea, I am. So what is interesting is that the first stage, belief in self goes, but you still believe in I am. And if you have somebody who says to you, I am enlightened, I can guarantee you they're not at the fourth stages. And often I think these people who tell you they're enlightened, my strong feeling is that they're just at the first level, the level of stream entry. They have this experience of not having this belief in a permanent self anymore, but unfortunately they still have the concept, the conceit, I am. So I think to be careful there. And then with that kind of conceit, I am this, I am that, then restlessness and also this ignorance in connection with the three characteristics. And so in a way, that then is really the full total awakening. But I think personally, if, you ma if we manage to experience the first three, or at least the first two, it's not bad going. <laughs> and so to see that this is a process of de-grasping, and as I said during the discussion, in the process of de-grasping, it's not just de-grasping for this grasping say, so I don't grasp anymore. Great. But by the grasping, then you can cultivate your potential for wisdom and compassion, and then that can develop more and more. That is more the point. And I think that's why the Buddha put so much emphasis on appropriate view, appropriate thinking, appropriate speech, appropriate action. 
Because it's not just removing something, but removing something so you're more likely to cultivate wisdom, compassion, and harmlessness, and non-ill will. Then I wanted to say a few words about meditative experiences. Because I think often there is this kind of equation between meditative experiences and awakening. I think that this is strongly uh, correlation, equation. And the worst book for that, and I don't recommend to read it, but you might read it now that I have told you. <laughs> and this is The Three Pillar of Zen by Philip Kaplow. And in this book, in the middle, you have a third of the book in the middle, which is about uh, enlightenment experiences. You read this book and you think, I have not got one of these. I want one of these. <laughs> it's very interesting. Very interesting. So in a way, what I find is interesting to look, the stages are about de-grasping. Then we hear all these stories about these people who have this awakening, enlightenment, and they experience this, they experience that, and you think, but you know, what do I experience? And I would say, personally, the way I would understand most of the meditative experiences is more our de-grasping experiences in different ways. One of the first experiences we can have in meditation, especially on meditation retreat, is what I would call opening of the heart. You're sitting in meditation, and suddenly you have this feeling your heart is completely open. And the way I could describe it in simple terms is that you have no problem with nobody whatsoever. Even that neighbor is okay. <laughs> and, so, and it's very interesting because in that field of this open heart, there is nobody, nothing that cannot be included. And it's a very amazing experience because generally we are I like Zeus, but he's okay, but it's kind of a little like for and against. You know, I want the whole thing. And often we find little things, you know, at least Zeus one, but not Zeus one. And so generally there is this separation. Generally there is this exclusion. And when we experience what I would call an all-inclusive opening of the heart, I think it's really kind of, to me, the point of these experiences is to, by experiencing them, we can see I am not stuck. I don't have to have this kind of what I would call restricted type of love, but I can experience love in a different way. I am capable of that. Then another thing that might happen is an insight. That, and and of course, when you are on an insight meditation retreat, this is even worse. You kind of, you know, I am on a seven-day, eight-day insight meditation retreat. You come out, how many insights did you get, you know? Oh, I got 10 of those, but me, I got 15 of those, you know? And so in a way, to be careful of this kind of, you know, totaling of one's insight. And to see what is interesting about insight is that actually 
it enables you to see something you had not seen before. But the thing was there. It's not that you see something which is extraordinary, which is other, but you see something which was in front of your nose. In the Zen tradition, they say it's like the fish realizing he is looking for water and the water was around him all the time. So when we have an insight, it's more that we're not blind anymore. It's kind of like you remove something. You kind of, ah, like me and the self-centeredness. Ah, it, I did not see it, but once I saw it, I could be with it in a different way. But what is interesting with the insight is that when you have it, it's like a, it's like a flash. It's like, ah. Oh, it's like, it seemed like kind of to come with little light around it, mini Christmas trees, you know? So it kind of comes with, wow! Because you see something very clearly you've never seen before. But what is important to see that that flash is just in that moment. And then the flash will go. I mean, it might last a day or two, but the flash itself will go. And then what you have is more a memory of an insight. And then, in a way, you have to make that insight organic in daily life. Because I would say it's easy to have the insight on the cushion, and often it's very hard. You can, you know, have the, for example, the open art experience to have the, I love everybody. And then you go home, can I love my neighbor? Can I love my neighbor dog? Who, kind of bark at three o'clock in the morning could be more difficult. So in a way, that's the thing. You have the insight, you see something so clearly, then it fades and becomes a memory. And then the task is how can this help me in some way to see things a little differently? But it's not a given that in your daily life you will see things that way. It's really a practice making it organic. Then any other things which that I would say happen quite often, and it's what I would call quietness and clarity. You sit in meditation and suddenly, finally, finally, something happens. And you feel very quiet and very clear. And generally everybody asks me, how can I deepen this. And I would say you don't need to deepen it. Just stay with it. Because often the first thing we do when we experience this is we get excited. Ah, finally, something is happening. Great. And then you kind of think, how am I going to describe it to my best friend? And the thing is really to be there with it. And that's what is interesting. You have to learn to be with this quietness and clarity and not do anything. And by actually not doing anything but being with it, being aware of it, actually it will last longer. And then of course over time it lasts, it lasts and then the energy will dissipate and then it will go and then thought will come back, etc. I think again if we experience ourselves like this, it's not to say this is magical or fantastic, but again it is nurturing the fact that we can experience ourselves differently. But we cannot order quietness and clarity. It will happen, 
And to me, it's a moment of degrasping happening by itself. Then you might have a mystical experience. And that is generally very exciting. You're sitting there just, you know, doing your breath or whatever it is, asking what is this, and, you know, doing your little meditation, nothing special. And then suddenly it's like flash, one bang, and you feel really elated, and suddenly you see, for example, everybody has a Buddha nature. This is fantastic. This is amazing. Everybody has a Buddha nature. Nobody doesn't have it. And it's not a thought. It's really an experience. And it's very kind of enlivening, joyful, etc. But like all things, it comes and it goes. And then again, when you go home, can you see the neighbor, etc., etc., as having the Buddha nature? Because again, it will become a memory. It becomes a past experience, which I think is good to have, to experience that. But to see, we... We're not going to be able generally to replicate it, to feel that way. But having felt it, it might open a little our vista. Then another experience we might have is what I call the experience of either oneness or the experience of emptiness. And often people are very worried by that one. And often they come to me and they say, I am empty. And they're very worried. And they say, but look, look, you're still here. Don't worry. You still exist. And I think we have to be careful because this really makes us feel very different. Because generally we feel very fixed, very solid, very separate in this body with these borders. And suddenly we feel like we have no border. We feel like there is kind of this softness. There is not this kind of me here. It's very kind of vague. It's very spacious. And so to see, we don't disappear. You're still here. It's just you experience yourself differently. And so to not be so worried about, I am disappearing. How am I going to function? <laughs> Generally, this doesn't last so long. You know, and then everything comes back. And you feel more fixed. You feel more solid. But to be careful, either... To be afraid of it because I am disappearing, you generally are not, you're still here. Or to think that this is it, you are awakened. Because in Korea, this often happened to the monks. You know, they would practice hard, then they would experience emptiness and they would say, I am awakened. They would go to the master and they would say, I am empty. The master would hit him with the stick. <laughs> they would say, I. And they would say, You see, you're not empty. So I think it's just kind of like a stage. It's kind of just, again, a de-grasping of kind of the, the, the more fixed way we experience ourselves. And, of course, it can be many different. I think it's also important to see we can have different experiences according to some of the practices we do, also according to some of the teaching we are given. And then you can have, you know, experience of momentariness, experience of creation, or things like that. But I think it's very important to see. This, for me, all these are more like experience of de-grasping, just to give us a little taste. But the, the, the big question is how, from that, 
how about my daily life? And how I can, that memory might help me to be a little looser, to be a little more open. Then I wanted to say just a few words about something somebody uh, was asking a little about yesterday, and what is called sudden and gradual. And generally, the Theravada school is very known for gradual, that it's a gradual path and it's a gradual so-called awakening. And I was very pleased to see that uh, Bhikkhu Analayo, my great friend now, uh, was saying that, no, he sees also the Theravada path of having a gradual cultivation, but with a sudden awakening happening time to time. And in the, as the person was saying, in the Korean Zen tradition, they say you need to have first the sudden awakening, and then you, you have gradual cultivation, and then again another sudden awakening, and then again a gradual cultivation. And I think this is depend a little of the tradition. Sometimes they think you start by gradual cultivation, then you have sudden awakenings, or vice versa. I think it's just you have moment. And I think it's important to see that sudden. Sudden, in a way, means that there is a potential at any moment for a degrasping. The fact that at any moment, you might suddenly not grasp so much. And that, yes, that can happen at any moment. But at the same time, this is not enough because we have these habits, we have these patterns that we have, in a way, developed, cultivated for so long that, in a way, the gradual cultivation is to dissolve the pattern. So, you know, the practice helps us to have these moments of degrasping, and then, generally, the habits reassert themselves. So then you have to work on the habits, and then that makes it less fixed, less solid. Then again, you can have a degrasping. Because the difficulty is that, to me, our path is actually at the crossroad of two dimensions, the depth dimension and the width dimension. And actually, we are at the crossroad. And sometimes, like on this retreat, you might go into the depth because of the conditions. And then all the time in your daily life, you are cultivating the width. And so I think we need to cultivate both together to have what I would call a really whole spiritual path in all aspects. Because the problem is that if you just have sudden, this is interesting, and the, the Zen school is very, uh, has lots of emphasis on sudden. So in the Zen school, even in Korea, you have what they call sudden, sudden. Sudden awakening, sudden cultivation. But the problem with just emphasizing sudden is generally ethics goals, which personally I don't think is so helpful. If you just have gradual, then you have a really a very gradual series of steps. And often it becomes very mechanic. I remember a friend going on a retreat in a place which had a very graduated path. And every morning, somebody would knock at the door and would say, what did you experience? And she was supposed every day to experience something different. 
The problem is that she was, she was slacking. You know, everybody else was on track, and she was slacking. She was kind of, you know, minus three. You know, she was not getting there. And she said it was a bit kind of, she felt a little bit, oh, I am not, you know, I should be experiencing this, and I am not. So I think that's a problem with just graduated path. And so in a way, personally, I think you need the two together. You need to have that openness of the sudden, and then you need the cultivation of the gradual. And then the two together really can really, I think, make a, a good complementarity on the path so that we can walk on the path toward awakening. But not an awakening very far, but that we can have moment of awakening and we can also have moment, and I would say, of a gradual cultivation. And when I was in um, doing my research for Buddhist women, in, and I went to Korea and I was interviewing different Buddhist women, and I met this nun. And this nun was a teacher in a university, Buddhist university. And so I asked her, what is your practice? And she said, well, you know, first, you know, I went to the temple and I studied, and then as I studied, I read this book, which said, which is the Avatasaka Sutta, which says, a sentient being is a Buddha, or all sentient beings are Buddhas, and all Buddhas are sentient beings. And she thought, ah, I am a sentient being, but I am a Buddha too. So the only thing I have to do is to be a Buddha. So that's her practice. Her practice is to be a Buddha. So in the morning, she do a little meditation, and then she goes. And she goes out into her life with the intention to have the same wisdom and the same compassion as a Buddha. And then at the end of the day, she reviews how Buddha-like was she and how sentient being like had she been? Because the Buddha too was a sentient being. And I want just to finish with two poems. And this is a poem by a nun with whom I practiced when I was in Korea. And she was a very lovely, great practitioner nun. And I wrote a book about my experience and her experience. And so she was extremely humble, but everybody knew she had had great experiences in meditation. This everybody knows all the time, so they knew. So everybody would say, yes, 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 she had had great experiences. <laughs> but she was so humble. You know, she would really, one of the most humble person I have ever met, also very lovely. So what I want to do is just read two poems she wrote about awakening. Buddha cannot see Buddha, sees Buddha. I cannot see I, sees I. I saw the nature, awakened to the way. What rubbish. Then the other one. Clear water flows on white rock. 
the autumn moon shines bright. So clear is the original face. Face. Who dare say it is or is not? You want me to read them again? Yes. <laughs> Buddha cannot see Buddha, sees Buddha. I cannot see I, sees I. I saw the nature awakened to the way. What rubbish. Clear water flows on white rock. The autumn moon shines bright. So clear is the original face. Who dare say it is or is not? So that's what I wanted uh, to say today. And I just want to answer a question because I got this question. There are different possibilities on resting with the breath in breath meditation. Nostril, top of upper lip, throat, chest, abdomen, etc. From your experience, do they differ in their effect? And if so, how can one best choose the appropriate focus for a given situation. Personally, I don't think it matters. Really, I would say the important thing is that you can focus on that place so that you can stay in that place. And so I think it's really up to you. I would say if you feel really distracted, then I would say to have a smaller focus is not a bad idea. And generally, I would say to focus on the nostril. Why? Because generally, there you can feel the air coming in and out. That would be the only reason I would recommend it. <laughs> but if you feel not so distracted and relatively calm, I would say you can then more be more like in a waiting stance waiting for the breath to happen and follow its rhythm in the whole body. That would be personally what I would recommend. But if you find that focusing on the belly is better, on the upper lip is better for you, just do that. I think that no place is sacred. No method is better than any other. Is more, can I do it? The question is more, can I focus in that place? Or is it kind of like, how can I focus and where is it? Should it be in the middle here or should it be a little left or a little right? I think I would not worry too much about that. Try to find a place which seems to work for you and then do that. Are there anything else? Yes. No. No, I was not. Because you see, in my time, in my day, the, the master did not really use a stick. Uh, the only time they used a stick when they, do, when they did the non-sleep week. 
uh, and then people really needed to be kind of kept awake a bit. <laughs> and, uh, and then only if somebody really asked him a stupid question, then maybe he would kind of... Once I saw him in action, once, only once, I saw him in action, there was a talk... And in Korea, when you, the, the master gives a talk, you can interrupt him, you know, if you feel up to it. And so this guy suddenly interrupted him. And I don't know what the guy said, but he threw a stick at him. <laughs> I, I did not know much Korean then, so I, I don't know what happened then. But I think it was kind of one of these Zen exchange. But that's the only time I saw it. Yes? Yes, yes, it could be another question. The advantage of the what is this is that it's so neutral. You can't really stick much on it. Some people sometimes use, who am I? But then you have the I floating there. What is this is kind of more neutral. I think that's what they, they use that question. No, you can have many different questions. The important thing, the one thing they say in terms of location is to not ask the question with the head, so not to be, what is it, what is it, what is it? That's not a good idea. And generally what they recommend is actually trying to ask the question with the belly. So it really becomes more a physical sensation. And so that the question is more like a diving board to, in a way, plunge into a pool of perplexity. That's a little the idea. So at the beginning... It's a little mantra-like at the beginning when you do it. What is this? What is this? And then it kind of has more of a kind of a physical sensation, but you don't do anything with the body, but it's kind of more coming from your whole being. Does that answer the question? Okay. Yes. I think what you're describing is something I, I don't necessarily recommend, but not for you, but it, it just in general I don't mention it because 
is kind of in a way being aware of thought. But I find that if I try to be aware of thought, there is no thought. And the way to be aware of thought is to focus on something else and then I see where my mind goes. But you can do it directly in that way to kind of like, I would say this is actually the, the third, the third and fourth satipatthana, the third and fourth mindfulness. The third one is to be aware of the mind, to be aware. So, of course, in the text, they say, you know, notice if you have a lustful mind, an unlustful mind, or this mind, or that mind, which personally I think is not so helpful because it's too kind of like prescriptive. But I think that's what you're doing, to see where does my mind go? So to kind of see a little, get kind of a little kind of a, an indication. And I think that's, yes, one of the, one of the mindfulness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I personally, this was just because it was a question on the breath. Then, I mean, Stephen is not at all into locating the breath. And what he does is just he wait for the breath to happen. And that works really well for him. And then some people just to feel the body just as a body, for other people to go to the sensation. For people, I think this is an idea to, this is also a type of, if you look at the Satipatthana of our great Bhikkhu Analayo, then you will see, it describes a little that, but in that kind of more mental kind of way. Personally, I think it's better to do a little what you do, to kind of just be aware of the awareness. That's also something we can do. And in a way, it's kind of nearly being aware of the feeling tone, of the awareness, kind of following where. And it's what I would call nearly being aware of the texture. Because I think that's what we become aware of as we meditate more, is actually the texture, even before the thought start, there is kind of like kind of a texture, feeling tone in the, in the body, which will take us this way. Mm, daydreaming or <gasps> anxiety. There is kind of a little something. And over time, we can be more conscious, less conscious of the content and more conscious of the kind of nearly like what I would the feeling, the sensation, the texture of the thought. Yeah, yeah, no, no, this is fine. Yes. Um, while I've been sitting, um, I've been trying to kind of stand back and observe the breath. Um, and I have kind of long, steady breaths. And I found it's, I found myself very uncomfortable physically. And I've been thinking that I should stand back and observe it. But I think that I've been holding it too tightly. Um, and it's suddenly kind of dawned on me. So I went through a stage when I stood back a bit and I relaxed and I, I didn't get the pain anymore and I could observe the breath. But then it kind of moved on and then my breath became very erratic. And I was thinking, you know, it, is it breathing me or, or am I controlling it now? Or am I just playing stupid games with myself? <laughs> so, but I tried not to think and just but it, my, my breath just ended up very erratic you see this is why sometimes I recommend not to focus on the breath mm. 
And I think it's better to focus on the body or focus on sound, especially sound. You can't control sounds. And that's why I think sound sometimes can be so much better because there is no controlling. Because this is the problem with the breath. As soon as you pay attention with, to it, before you just bro- breathe, and now I am breathing. And often you be, I am doing the breath. You know? And then you try not to do it. And then you kind of try to do it itself, and then you do it back. And, and then it kind of gets a little complicated. And then, you know, you describe it quite well. So personally, generally, I would, I, that, when it's a bit like this, I would say, do the, do the sounds. Do the sounds, do the body. And do the breath, but it's very hard, you know, to not control the breath. And then if you start to, to control it, it feels a little tense. And so it's kind of like, how can I step back? But the, that becomes a bit too problematic. I would change the object. And, and then later, come back to the breath if you want to. Okay, we have that. Okay. Okay, first I would say, personally, I would not see the meditation as a mean to get to our negative emotions. I don't think this is uh, what meditation does. What meditation does is to help us to develop concentration and inquiry, so we develop calm and clarity, so then we develop creative awareness, and then we will see what is there to see. So when you're on a retreat, nobody generally is doing you anything. <laughs> so generally, I would say, on a retreat, you have more the light or the habitual level. On a retreat, unless somebody kind of uh, come and pinch your food or kind of do something, <laughs> you won't feel much. You won't feel much. And I think this is good, that there is not much, you know, uh, problems and that you can actually experience yourself. You think it's superficial? Personally, I don't think it's superficial. I think it's peaceful. It's restful. And then you can see just, you know, light planning, this and that. I think that's good. That's good. But what you are cultivating here now will make it so that when you leave the retreat, when you have a strong emotion because somebody is doing something to you, then you might be able slowly, not at the beginning, but slowly to be differently with it. So I would see this more as a training, as a training the muscle of creative awareness. And then when things are intense, then you can start 
to be with them differently. But before you can do that, what you want to do, in a way, you need to build the power of creative awareness. And that's done in just sitting here and seeing what I would say light stuff. It's just, that's what's going on. I am with it. And I learn to be with it. I learn to see it. And then it will come useful later on. And then you can do... Uh, I used to be quite angry type. I am a little fiery, a little energetic, and I, used, I could be quite angry. Until... Uh, I saw the different triggers, contributing factor, and then things were a little better, but still I could get angry. Until I had this little uh, Buddhist argument with another Buddhist, so you don't raise the voice, but uh, lots of resentment <laughs> and opinion. And then after that, I had to stop the discussion because I had to cook for a conference. And then, as I was cutting the carrots, I suddenly saw myself doing this. <laughs> and then, with the creative awareness, I went inside the body. And I could feel my body like this. And then I saw nobody was doing this to me. I was doing it. And in that seeing, it went. And then I looked in the mind, and the mind was going, I am right, she is wrong, I am right, she is wrong. And then I saw she was doing exactly the same thing in reverse. And I laughed. I thought, we both right and wrong. And it went. But you see, this took some time to develop the power of creative awareness. So you, you know, it takes some time. But what we're doing here will then help us to see this kind of more intense activation in our daily life. So I have to stop here. Now there is a little <coughs> meditation or standing.